the winners and losers of the 2023 Georgia Legislative Session. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And this is such a cool episode of the Politically Georgia podcast because we are not only taping for our podcast audience, but we're also taping for a live audience of, of, of our subscribers. And our longtime listeners know that we often are <laughs> taping this remotely. Today is no exception. Patricia and I are actually sitting car by car uh, outside uh, a, a shop billed as the world's largest gun store where we literally just left uh, Ron DeSantis's first quasi-campaign event for his 2024 bid in uh, in Atlanta. And so we will talk more about that later. But coming up, we also are going to review what passed, what died, and where the focus will be the next legislative session. And we'd love, we cannot wait to answer questions from our live virtual audience in the second segment of the show. And of course, Patricia, we're going to do our who's up and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. We're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We are both going on, well, all three of us are going on very, very little sleep. Um, I know I was at the Capitol until about 2 a.m. in the morning. This morning, Patricia, so much happened, but what really, the story of the session might be what didn't happen because the latest push to legalize sports betting failed. A new expansion of mental health care fell apart. A school voucher measure backed by Governor Brian Kemp and other top Republicans went down in flames. And a new push to define anti-Semitism as a hate crime never even got a vote in the Senate last night. So a lot did not happen, Patricia. A lot did not happen. And all of those things seemed possible um, around 8 o'clock at night on Wednesday night. And that is what is so crazy about signy die which is the 40th day of the legislative session is that they there is so much jammed into the calendar and so much left on the calendar that may or may not pass may or may not come up for a vote or when it does come up for a vote could fail on the floor which is exactly what happened with school vouchers and so um it's kind of a crazy way to do business in the legislature there was a lot of downtime i felt like greg um and maybe the three weeks leading up to signy die and then it really felt like it was picking up picking up sort of like a locomotive and then all of a sudden the locomotive is out of control and then it sort of (laughs) <laughs> almost feel like it crashed last night, but they actually, they got a lot of things done. But to your point, there were a lot of things that were left on the table. Some of those were because of policy 
other of those were just because of politics. And that's the way it works when you have a governor, lieutenant governor, and speaker of the house who were not always entirely on the same page. A lot of those went down because of inter-party Republican kind of power struggles. Others, um, again, like school vouchers, had people crossing party lines. Um, Republicans in particular went over to support the Democrats against that voucher bill. So there were there's a lot to talk about, about um, what happened on Sine Die. But to your point, a lot of it was what didn't pass. The biggest thing that did pass, of course, was the state budget. And that also passed in the waning hours, really in the afternoon on day 40. Um, and that was after some more inter-party, inter-chamber fights on that as well. They finally got an agreement. There was not even a guarantee they would get an agreement, um, but they did nail down the state budget um, finally on day 40 as well. All kinds of things packed in there. That is a document we'll have to be coming through Mm -hmm. for a long time that has those $2,000 pay raises for teachers, of course, very large tax rebates for Georgia taxpayers, increases in pay for uh, law enforcement officers across the state, a big debate about funding for the University System of Georgia, full funding for the Hope Scholarship recipients next year. So a ton to unpack in there, and we'll be doing that for the next several days and weeks, probably. And let's use this podcast to unpack some of those headlines. First off, school vouchers fails. Um, $6,500 per student vouchers. This is an issue that kind of snuck up on a lot of folks. This has been a debate under the Gold Dome for more than a decade, but it really went nowhere. I mean, last year it really fell apart after House then House Speaker David Ralston was upset at the tactics that uh, voucher supporters were using. And he said, he said a leaflet they had sent out was the dumbest political move he's ever seen in his career. And so needless to say, that was going nowhere. But now, as you mentioned, we have a new lieutenant governor, a new speaker. We have a governor who is coming off a resounding re-election victory. And all three of them supported this idea in different ways, right? But all three of them at some level supported this school voucher. And it goes to show you that even with the triumvirate of power at the Gold Dome backing something like this, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. And near the final days of the session, you had Governor Kemp go out publicly and urge lawmakers to pass this voucher bill. Um, the Senate had already passed it. The House was, was the one that was the body where it was stalling. Uh, the governor met with House lawmakers privately behind closed doors and pushed them. He went on radio and publicly in, encouraged them to pass this measure. And Patricia, it died um, a pretty remarkable death. 16 or so Republicans ended up voting against it. One Democrat voted for it. Uh, it, it. It failed six votes short of the majority it needed. And right after that vote was when Governor Kemp was to give his big address to the state house. And it was a kind of an awkward moment because it, you could get the sense that this was supposed to be a victory lap. I mean, you don't, if you're House Speaker John Burns, you don't bring this up for a vote if you don't think it's going to pass. And he was asked that very question uh, late, late, well, I guess I should say early, early this morning. Um, why would you bring this up if it didn't have the votes? And he said, I thought it did have the votes. So again, what a, it was a remarkable moment. This issue is 100% going to come up again next year and it could end up passing. But for now, uh, it was a major victory for public school advocates and a defeat for the governor and, and some of his allies. Yeah, this really felt like a hyper-local versus national issue. Um, the hyper-local piece comes especially for rural lawmakers when they are hearing from their school boards, their local um, public school principals, people who are just right there in their communities and saying, we do not like this voucher bill. We are very concerned that this is 
a financial commitment on behalf of the state that um, right now when we've got lots of money in the budget, not that hard to pass, but what happens when those budgets start to shrink? Then do you take those dollars for vouchers out of public school programs? Um, the, ball, the law was written in a way that that uh, should not have happened, but you can rewrite those laws, obviously. So that hyper-local element really did end up, uh, I think, hurting it immensely. Um, Governor Kemp did put his weight behind it at the end, but not at the beginning. And it did feel like if this had been one of his very top priorities on day one, going into the session, it would have gotten um, perhaps a more thorough hearing. There was a lengthy debate on the House floor on day 40. Um, but the things that he did talk about ahead of time, um, those uh, tax cuts, the pay raises for teachers and law enforcement, the prosecutorial oversight that we can talk about, those were the big tent poles of his priorities heading into the session. All of those passed. They were all pushed by his floor leaders. It was very clear when it was the governor's priority. And those pretty much sailed through. Even with some um, debate on the prosecutorial piece, it was a lot of uh, pushback from Democrats, but it passed um, relatively mm-hmm. easily. That's just not the case with school vouchers. He put his weight behind it. There was a lot of national attention coming in from the Wall Street Journal, from uh, School Choice Foundations, people pushing this. But um, they, I just don't think they got the sales job done, um, especially in the House chamber, to move it across. And that was one of those moments where I was genuinely surprised. A lot of a lot of long, like longtime observers, I'm sure you were surprised, Patricia, um, because again, you don't often see a bill be brought to a vote like that one without it being assured of passage. And that's why there's all sorts of whip counts and other other uh, measures that that House leaders take to to ensure. And so there must have had some very late flips. I, I've heard a few names. I don't want to say them yet because I've I've reached out to those lawmakers today to see. Um, why they why they made the decisions they did just because I want to want to get them on the record. Uh, but the other big fallout we have is the the latest in the House Senate, um, you know, infighting over certificate of need and the hospital regulations. And we knew all along that it would involve more than just whether or not certificate of need hospital deregulation legislation would pass. Right. Um, this the lieutenant governor at the time. Um, made clear to, to, to us at the AJC that mental health legislation could also kind of be victim of the crossfire because he really wanted this legislation involving hospital deregulation to pass. And House leaders and Governor Kemp's administration uh, did not, <laughs> in part because they were worried that it would jeopardize uh, a potential Wellstar health system takeover of Augusta University's hospitals. Um, but either way, what we know now is that men- the mental health package that was so near and dear to uh, the late House Speaker David Ralston and, and to his successors, Speaker John Burns, um, pretty much got dismantled. Uh, ver- a very small provision of it was tacked onto another bill that, that ended up passing. Um, but the rest of that package, which would significantly boost resources for mental health um, services around the state, the rest of that package did not pass. And it'll be a, it'll come back up again next year. And and so it's not you know it's not dead dead. Uh, but certainly it was a disappointment for many House leaders. And John Burns said, probably used the, dis- the word disappointment at least five times early this morning as he was recounting what happened in the early morning press conference. Yeah, that was just a huge disappointment for the people who've been working on this bill all year long since the other, since the previous mental health reform package passed. Last year, they got right to work on this package. They had um, hearings and uh, 
gathered data and did all kinds of um, pre-legislating ahead of the session in order to have it ready to go. It passed the House 163 to 3 to give you an idea of the kind of support mm-hmm. it had in the House. I think a lot of that was because of the um, Ralston legacy, the belief that this is what he would have wanted. And it was really built on that foundation that his bill last year um, had laid. So this was really seen as the companion bill, the second piece to that bill. And so the it just sailed through the House. Um, the Senate side was a completely different story. And in committee, it's not that there were major objections raised in committee. Um, but at the time when it was time for the bill to come up for a vote, um, State Senator Ben Watson, who's the chairman of the Health Committee, simply said, we're not voting on this today. That's been decided, and this is not happening today. And it was close enough to day 40 that you could tell the bill was really imperiled. That was after that certificate of need program that you talked about. That was after that that uh, kind of controversy had already blown up. Um, the House had made it clear they were going to put the brakes on that hospital legislation because they weren't ready to move it. And it really did feel like this mental health bill, and we know that this mental health bill got caught up in that crossfire. Really, uh, an example of if you're not passing my bill, I'm not passing your bill. Obviously, that kind of um, political reality was devastating to the mental health advocates who've been working on this bill. And um, I think it's created some some tense relationships in the Capitol as a result of that. Uh, other bills, I think, probably fell in the for the same reasons. And um, it's really an example of once you get down to it, these so much of what happens in the Capitol is about relationships and it's about power and it's about who makes the final call on these decisions. And there's always a tug of war between the governor, the lieutenant governor and the House Speaker. And we are still sort of sorting through what passed and what didn't to really divine who in the Capitol has the power. I think we know pretty cert- with a certainty that Governor Brian Kemp got nearly all of what he wanted, not everything. So he doesn't have absolute power at this point, um, but he still mm-hmm. is very, very popular, has immense support in those chambers. And I think that uh, on the House side and Senate side, each leader seems to have the support of their caucuses. But there's very clearly this headbutting between the two chambers that has existed many times before. And it looks like it's, you know, we're in for round a hundred of that, of that, this version of that story. And it's really had major effect on legislation this year. Yeah. And certainly we've seen this headbutting for decades under the cold dome, but it's going to continue to shape the relationships and we've got new players. And so, you know, we weren't sure how vicious the infighting will be. And has certain, it's not at the level we've seen in the eighties and nineties uh, for certain, but but it is, it, it, it did reach a new level of tension that I hadn't seen in the last few years, at least, um, when we had relatively tame relationships between Kemp, Ralston, and Jeff Duncan, the former lieutenant governor. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we cannot wait to hear from some of your questions. If you don't have any, we're going to make up our own. Uh, this is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. 
follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, along with our colleague in Washington, Tia Mitchell. We think the newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now, this very moment, by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And you can get six months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. And Patricia, this deal ends Saturday, April 1st. Janie B., I think now it's time to do a live, our first ever live listener mailbag, followed by our who's up and who's down. It is time for the listener mailbag segment of the show. And just a reminder for our podcast listeners, we have a live virtual audience as we tape this uh, episode of Politically Georgia. So our audience is of AJC subscribers who we love and appreciate, and we're happy to do special events like this for our subscribers. And uh, so anybody in our virtual audience can click ask a question and send it on in. We don't have any just yet, but we had some in the chat. Now, unfortunately, as I use the chat feature, it doesn't stay still. So I'm going to paraphrase, and I think her name was Simone. Simone had a question about what happened with the anti-Semitism bill. Oh, that's a good question, Simone. Uh, We're still trying to figure that out. Um, One of the sponsors of the measures said that they had the votes to pass it in the Senate. And I was told by Senate leaders that it was going to come up fairly early on Wednesday. We knew that there was a lot of energy behind this measure. Uh, We knew there was a lot of um, debate over it as well. Uh, About two dozen Democrats voted against it in the House when it when it first passed. And then there was a late amendment in the Senate that kind of was looked at as a poison pill. And so the lawmakers had to kind of go back to the drawing board and, and reassess it. Um, it will come up again next year. It's another one of those two-year issues. But uh, it, it's an uh, understatement to say people are, are, are um, disappointed and frustrated in the Jewish community. Uh, it is, I mean, I'm a member of the Jewish community and it's, it's the number one question I get around town is, uh, and today I'm getting all of what happened, but even a few days ago is what's going to happen to it? And uh, there's no clear answer yet. I'm trying to, I, I've been bugging folks to get a sense, but really sometimes, especially on these frenetic days, there's a worry that even if they had the votes to pass it, bringing something up that could be an hour or so of debate um, could derail some other legislation that is trying to, you know, you're trying to hit that, that midnight deadline. It's not a hard and fast deadline, but you're trying to get, the day done by around midnight. And sometimes Senate leaders and sometimes legislative leaders don't want to bring up a vote, even if they've got the votes, because it would lead to a a whole long debate that could just postpone other votes. Yes, that was an issue, as Greg said, that people um, have been watching very carefully. It became a very um, timely and especially emotional issue after the anti-Semitic flyers were delivered in Dunwoody um, across really the metro suburbs. And then we started to hear from communities all around the state um, who had also gotten similar flyers. We started to have those sent to us at the AJC. A lot were posted on social media as well. Um, There's all kinds of research that shows that anti 
anti-Semitism had a real spike recently. It's super concerning to people, very concerning, obviously, to Esther Panich, who's the only Jewish member in the House. And she brought this bill up. Um, she did have Republican support on the bill. And um, I think it surprised some people when it didn't uh, come up for a final vote. But to Greg's point, when the items that are left on the agenda after, you know, four o'clock on day 40 are the state budget, mental health vouchers. Those all had their own lengthy debates. What mental health did not. But then at the same time, the chambers were gaveling out for lengthy periods at a time to have negotiations about which bills were going to come out next. Of course, they had to break for dinner. Um, you know, there, there are delays that even mean that the very limited time that exists um, can often get committed to other things previously. And um, you just don't want your bill left to, to move on day 40. It can have momentum. It can sort of get squeezed into a separate package, but more likely than not, it's just going to have to wait till next year, especially when we're in the first year of a two-year session. So leaders and either our members were able to say, oh, well, we didn't get it done this year, but don't worry, we can come back next year. Had this been the end of the session, it would have to have had a full rewrite, a new introduction with new members. This will not be a new issue when it comes up um, in January of next year. I'm sure it will come up again, and um, we'll see if the supporters were able to retool it in order to answer the concerns of the people who had objected in the first place. Very good. You guys uh, ready for our first question from our live audience? Uh-huh. We are ready. <laughs> the, the, for the podcast listeners that don't see Greg and Patricia right now, their eyes are big. They're nodding. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I pulled up a call from Michael who wanted to ask about the legislation that's sort of known as the anti-Fani bill. Um, but mm-hmm. it says Michael's browser is not supported. Oh, dear. So, Michael, I'm sorry, I can't put you on. But, uh, Greg, Patricia, you want to talk about the uh, the oversight bill yeah. that uh, has been running through the House and Senate? Yeah, well, it's passed, and Governor Kemp will almost uh, assuredly sign it. This is something that... Is some critics call it the anti Fonnie Willis bill, and it's impossible to disentangle Fonnie Willis from this entire debate and this legislation. But at the same time, you won't hear sponsors bring her name up. You know, you'll hear them bring up the name of Deborah Gonzalez, the DA in Athens. You'll hear them bring up the names of other DAs that have either been removed from office or faced criminal scrutiny or faced, you know, controversy. Um, they say that there needs to be a new state panel with powers to remove or sanction or at least investigate prosecutors. And this legislation does that. Now, critics say there's already layers of accountability. There's the ballot box. There are provisions in the state law that allow the General Assembly to impeach a prosecutor if it comes to that. There's the State Bar of Georgia, which has oversight. Um, you know, there's there's uh, ability to recall local prosecutors. So they point to, um, to those things already embedded in the law. But I can tell you, uh, this was a party line issue from the get-go. For the most part, there was a few voter, votes here and there um, that broke party lines. And this is something that Governor Kemp signaled that was a, a key priority of his from even before the session started. Never came up really on the campaign trail that much. But right before the session started, when Governor Kemp started tweeting about far-left prosecutors in his hometown of Athens, that's when you knew that this was going to be something he put his clout behind. Yeah, we also started to hear about prosecutors shortly after the six-week abortion ban in Georgia went into effect. And a group of 
prosecutors around the state issued statements to say that they would not make uh, uh, investigating or prosecuting doctors under the new abortion ban. They, they said, I'm not prosecuting this law. It's not a priority for me. I don't agree with it. This is not why I was elected as DA. Not on my list of things to prosecute. That really got Republicans going. They were very, very upset that um, these newly elected district attorneys, mostly in Democratic areas, very progressive, elected, frankly, because they were progressive. And that is what their communities were looking for, apparently. And that's certainly what the DAs will tell you. The Republicans said, "You that is not your choice not to prosecute a bill. Of course, the prosecutor said, that's exactly my choice as a prosecutor with discretion that's built in to uh, the job description. The national dynamics here about Fonnie Willis are so fascinating because... You don't hear about Fonnie Willis at, during this debate. There are lots of other DAs that Republicans are talking about. The biggest pushback that came back from Democrats, though, on this particular bill is the fact that the commission that's being appointed is being appointed by the governor, the House Speaker, and the state Senate. Those are all Republicans who Democrats say are going to appoint Republicans to oversee a number of these DAs who are extremely progressive. Um, many of them are also minorities, uh, women of color. And Fannie Willis said very specifically she felt like this piece of legislation was racist. And that's the word that she used. She felt like Republican lawmakers are looking at all of the new DAs elected in 2020, including her, including Deborah Gonzalez. And they're seeing people who they're not used to being DAs and they're seeing people who they politically disagree with. And um, Fannie Willis said, uh, that's not your role. That's the role of the voters to choose who we are and what we do. And um, this is a fight I'm sure we will continue to see a lot of. But Republicans um, have the votes in both chambers on this and said they won the day on this particular issue. Hi, Sherry. Next up, we have a uh, call from Sherry. And uh, Sherry, welcome to Politically Georgia. Thank you. Nice to be here. Go ahead with your question. Okay. I wanted to ask you all about the anti-trans legislation. Why this term? Did they push it so hard? And, you know, the numbers I've seen show that even Republicans are um, majority in, in favor of trans rights. So, and the health, the health issues, they go along with that. And and parental rights and medical, you know, doctor's rights with their patients. So why was it so important to Kemp? What does he gain from it? And what did the uh, the sponsors and the GOP voters gain from it? Yeah, go first. Well, I can. Do you want me to jump in on that? Greg, do you want to go? Well, I can. Well, I'll go ahead yeah. because I wrote a column about this. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. we noticed down at the General Assembly that there were very few social issues or culture war issues that were really getting attention in oxygen. There were not major abortion issues because the House Speaker said that he wanted to see um, a pause on those until the six-week abortion ban has made its way through the courts. Doesn't want that. Um, we didn't see many gun issues come forward. Uh, a number of festivals around the state have been canceled, perhaps because of gun laws, and festival organizers said that. Um, also, we've pretty much loosened most of the gun laws in Georgia. There's not much left to do once you don't have to carry a permit to carry your gun, and you can carry it lots of places. Um, so uh, one of the least legislated areas is on trans rights, and particularly um, the question of whether a 
transgender minors can access surgeries. There is a national movement. This is not unique to Georgia. This is happening in dozens of legislatures across the country that these bills are being brought up by Republicans. Um, I think the combination of the fact that there were not major other social issues happening, that this was a nationwide push by national groups, but doing it through state legislators. Um, and then the fact that coming off of the 2022 elections, transgender rights had become a real flashpoint in Republican, uh, not primaries, but in primary audiences. Herschel Walker, I point to this all the time, when he would have his rallies, his line about keeping men out of women's sports um, was the biggest applause line. All right, let's do a question from the chat real quick. Let's do a uh, follow-up question to the episode we dropped this morning. This is from Michael. He says, in this morning's episode, y'all talked with Democratic leadership about plans they had to block certain bills. Did we end up seeing any coordinated efforts by the Democrats towards any specific bills? And if so, which ones and what was the reasoning provided? Great question. And we, we certainly did see that that Democratic, they, they use their, uh, they're in the minority and there's not much they can do to influence legislation if Republicans really want to pass something, but they pick their spots. And one of the spots they picked was sports betting because they knew that Republicans could not pass that on their own because it's such a divisive issue within the Republican caucus. A lot of, a lot of conservatives, about half the caucus was against sports betting. So they needed uh, Democratic votes to pass that. So Democrats got together in the Senate and said, we're not going to give them anything on sports betting in, not because they didn't support sports betting. A number of Democrats back sports betting. They see it as an extra revenue stream to help the hope scholarship, to help higher education. Um, and, and other uh, and other benefits. But at the same time, they wanted to exact a price on Republican leaders for passing that transgender bill that we were just talking about. And to dovetail into that last question, Republicans saw that transgender bill as an, as an easy win for the cultural conservatives in a, in a session where they didn't uh, embrace new abortion restrictions or gun expansions or religious liberty or don't say gay legislation, you name it. A lot of the hot flashpoints that we've seen in other parts of the country, we really didn't see this session. Uh, we will next session, I bet, because it's an election year session. Um, that was seen as the sort of the culturally conservative win. So Democrats wanted to uh, make them pay a price for it. And we're very open about that. Um, they, they weren't hiding the fact that they were, they were uh, voting in a block against this measure. Janie B, do we have any more questions or is that the last one for now? Let's do one quick one and then we'll go into, yeah. uh, we'll go back into who's up and who's down. And I love this question. This is from Margaret. As journalists, do you feel citizens are attempting to engage more in democracy or less? Patricia, you take that one first. I'm going to say uh, more, especially just the question of democracy and the health of our democracy and the future of our democracy. I think, especially since January 6th, that question has been really on the table. And I think uh, seeing an attack on the Capitol, I used to work in the Capitol as a journalist and a Senate staffer. It's just not something I ever thought was possible. And so I think that um, that event and um, other events really around the world have led people to ask themselves, how strong is the U.S. democracy? How strong are the institutions here? I think we know many of the institutions are suffering, certainly in um, the trust of the American people, including the media. Um, so how strong is our democracy and what can we do to strengthen it? I hear that 
on the campaign trail all the time. And we were hearing from Democratic candidates who said that they felt like that was a major issue for their own voters in 2022 and 2020. And so I think it actually was kind of underplayed by the press, by we in the media. It didn't seem like a campaign issue or something that was motivating people. But we heard from lots of candidates that said out on the trail, it absolutely was something that they were hearing back from voters. That's what they cared about. And that's what they wanted to engage in and elect people to. On the Republican side, um, we hear also a lot about um, sort of fighting for freedom and um, fighting against socialism. Um, I talked to a number of new immigrants to the country who are voting for Republicans. They said they feel like they've come from authoritarian regimes and they want to pick people who they feel like are sort of are kind of less intrusive government. Um, and so I, I hear a lot about it. I hear concerns, and but I also hear a commitment among people to try and strengthen the U.S. democracy as well. And very quickly, my answer is also more. Um, partly it's social media, uh, more access to news, more access to information. And, th- and frankly, we are so grateful to you and our audience, to our subscribers, to our listeners, because it helps us serve that function for you. You know, we wouldn't be here outside in a parking lot outside the world's largest gun store after a Ron DeSantis event, uh, if not for your support. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Shani B. Now I think it's time for our favorite segment other than listener questions. Cause I love that. Who's up. Who's down. We always like to end the show on a high note. So let's start with our who's down. Patricia, who's your who's down for the week? So my who's down for the week, um, you know, it's just a little bit of a mixed bag coming out of the legislative session. I think my who's down the most is probably Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. He had made it very clear he wanted to pass that bill to overhaul hospital regulations, uh, said it was hugely important to him, hugely important to his office, quite important to his family, as a matter of fact, because of his father's property in Butts County that may have a hospital built on it or could have at some point built on it someday. And that bill just ran into a buzzsaw, did not get passed. And I think it has led also to a number of um, inner chamber feuds uh, that will take some time to resolve. So I think it uh, for for as much fight as Lieutenant Governor put into that issue, he did not get the result that he was looking for and may have even caused some collateral damage as well. My who's down for the week is sports betting advocates because I thought this was the year. A lot of folks thought this was the year. You had a lieutenant governor who backed it. You had a house, uh, you had a governor, Kemp, who backed it. You had a house speaker who was open to the idea. You had a number of lawmakers. You had the votes. You know, it seemed, at least it seemed like you had the votes. But of course, even if you have the votes, doesn't mean the issue will get done. And so that becomes a year two, another year two. I guess you could say year 22, because this debate has been going on for a long time. Okay, Patricia, who is your who's up for the week. My who's up for the week is the city of Atlanta because we finished this legislative session um, with Buckhead City pretty much down in flames. That effort um, got a pretty early death sentence, um, but it was the governor, Governor Brian Kemp, who was the one who really dealt the final blow. So once you have the Democrats who represent Buckhead against it, Democrats who represent Atlanta against it, and then Governor Brian Kemp coming in to really end the effort, that has taken off the table 
one of the um, really existential crisis for the city of Atlanta as of last year. But coming out of the legislative session this year, it looks like that issue has been pretty well put to bed. And so um, city leaders are definitely just glad to see that fight over. And we didn't hear all the Atlanta bashing that we usually do. Um, That has, Mm -hmm. I think, because of the Buckhead City fight, um, we did not hear Governor Kemp going after the city a whole bunch. Um, It seems like the city's in a pretty good place with the state right now. Uh, The governor and mayor have um, a pretty strong relationship at this point. We'll see where Mm -hmm. it goes. But at the moment, the city of Atlanta is who is up for now. In fact, Governor Kemp was supposed to go to the state of the city address, if not for the uh, the tornado damage. He had to go inspect in, uh, in 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 the areas of Georgia that were racked by those violent uh, storms. My who's up for the week is going to be, and we're talking about a topical issue, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We are literally just outside of his campaign event. And Patricia, I was struck by the fact that so many prominent Georgia Republicans are willing to be seen with him right now and who are kind of embracing his messaging. The crowd that we just saw in the world's largest gun store at Adventure Outdoors in Smyrna could have been the same crowd we saw at a Trump event just a few years ago. There were two fake electors in the crowd. There were statewide Republican officials. There were big time state legislative leaders. Um, There were activists who we've seen at a number of Trump rallies. And, you know, this would be one thing if Trump wasn't running. But the very fact that Ron DeSantis is the biggest potential rival to Donald Trump, of course, DeSantis hasn't entered the race yet. But still, the very fact that DeSantis is Trump's arch rival right now, and so many of these Georgia Republicans are willing to, to meet with him and be seen with him, says it all to me that he might be the— um, the uh, the de facto pick of Georgia Republicans. We have, there's a lot. There's a lot left on the campaign trail. This is the first event that Ron DeSantis has held in Georgia on his book tour, and he hasn't even entered the race yet. But that was that was very telling to me. As was his meetings at the state capitol before this event behind closed doors with dozens of state lawmakers who were just coming off signing die. They're as tired as we are, and with Governor Kemp uh, behind closed doors. Kemp has described their relationship as very very. Good. So I think Ron DeSantis, uh, for, for already being in a pretty good position in the Georgia Republican Party here, is my who's up for the week. Yeah, you know, there were MAGA hats in that crowd. There were Trump flags outside the building. I asked one yeah. of those prominent Republican officials, who do you think people will pick between DeSantis and Trump? And he said, DeSantis and who? <laughs> and he just sort of left it there. <laughs> that kind of said everything that we needed to hear. Um, although I did also notice that some of Ron DeSantis's biggest applause lines were for Governor Brian Kemp. Every time he mentioned Governor Kemp, he got big applause and he never mentioned Donald Trump's name once. And to me, that is a real sign Not of strength once. that he wasn't going after Trump. So, boy, 2024 is... Tis the season already. I love a campaign season and it's starting early. We're already there. It never ends. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast, to our live audience and the great questions they ask. We really want to do this again. So thank you for, uh, for, for bearing with us through this experiment. We had a blast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. 
Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.